Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Lord, as we gather before your holy word this morning, uh, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. Um, not always do we receive your word. We pray, Lord, that we would be open, totally open to receiving your word. And we, we pray, Lord, too, as you were pleading with Jonah 2,800 years ago, you're pleading with him on that hillside, Lord. We pray that you would plead with our own hearts this morning and that we would relent, Lord. We, we pray that you would free us from any self-righteousness. We pray that you would help us to rejoice, Lord, in your mercy. We love you, Lord. We don't love you nearly as much as we should, though, and we pray that you would stir that love up for you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little bit of review. We're in our, our fourth and final week of Jonah, and we're calling it Finish the Mission because we're not just talking about how Jonah had a mission to finish, but that we do. And we've been talking about God's global mission. Uh, we've been talking about missions. We've had a few people come up. The Vandenbergs came up a couple weeks ago and shared about their 11 years on the mission field. Um, we had Lorian come last week and talk about how she's planning to go to the Middle East next next. Um, year next sometime next year and we've been just talking about like we want what we want from God is that he would give us our heart for the nations that he would help us to give ourselves completely to his global mission whether that means sacrificial sending or sacrificial going or or both and so here we are in the in Jonah we're in the last week here um, remember Jonah had called been called by God to leave his home and go to Nineveh and preach a warning to uh, the Ninevites Jonah fled he rebelled against God. He went in the opposite direction by ship, tried to get thousands of miles away. God intercepted him with a storm. The ship threatened to break up. He was thrown overboard. And just about to the point where he's going to drown. I mean, he was very convinced he was dying in chapter 2. God swallowed, had him swallowed up by a sea creature that, that took him for three days around and then vomited him up on the beach. And then from there, we saw last week that Jonah had this long trip, 500 miles by land, to try to get back where he should have been in the first place. And so he preaches the, the message to them. And last week we saw that, amazingly, the Ninevites repented and believed. And they weren't destroyed. They were saved. This is the greatest mass conversion in history. This is the greatest rescue, mass rescue in history. This is, Jonah is the most successful missionary of all time. He must be so happy, right? He must be so happy about this, to be used by God in this way and to have all these people saved. He must just be like so full and so excited and so happy. He's not. Look at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Not a surprise. What's going on here? Well, you know, this gets to Jonah's motivations for why he ran in the first place. Now, children's versions of Jonah say what? Why did he run? He was scared. Right? He was scared. And I guess that's what you have to do if you want to make this a children's story. Is you have to say, he was scared, and everybody can go, oh, okay, you know, that's so understandable. The Ninevites were horrible people. It makes sense, right? But that's not what's here. This isn't a children's story, guys. This is a dark story about the dark heart of one of God's people. And so why did Jonah refuse to take God's word in Nineveh in the first place? Look at verse 2. He explains it. He says, oh, Lord, is this not what I said in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. Jonah initially ran, and he's angry now, because the Ninevites were saved, and he hates them. 
okay? This is why, like, it doesn't really make a good children's book, you know? It's like, and then, you know, then little daughter, <laughs> Jonah hated these people, you know? It, it's, a, it's a hard story, right? He hated them. Jonah's like, I knew it. This is just like you. This is the way you are. I can't take you anywhere. You start saving people that I hate, right? He's all, just kill me. Very dramatic man, right? He's a very dramatic man. And he storms off outside of town. He goes up on a little hillside and sulks in a booth that he made for himself. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's like, <laughs> but, you know, don't you love how the Bible is so honest and raw and realistic about how human beings really are? There's no gloss here. There's no St. Jonah, you know. It's, it's, it's showing his raw emotion. Poor Jonah, guys, is a mess. He's trapped in his own self-righteousness. And I know it's hard, guys, to feel compassion for self-righteous people, especially when they're acting like this. But you got to keep in mind, guys, that Jonah's trapped. Jonah is trapped in his self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a trap. It's a prison. Jonah's miserable, and he's stuck that way. It is his sin, but it's also his slavery. Jonah's imprisoned in his own self-righteousness. What is self-righteousness? Well, if you break down the word self and righteousness, it kind of makes sense, but self-righteousness is trusting in your own goodness. And I want you to hear this definition. Self-righteousness is believing that we're pretty good people, better than most, and therefore deserve God's blessing more than others. Does that definition bother you? Does it concern you? It concerns me. It seems to grab me. Self-righteousness is believing that we're pretty good people, better than most, and therefore deserve God's blessing more than others. That's where Jonah's at. It's a trap, though. This morning, we're going to see what are the bars of this prison, this prison of self-righteousness. What are the bars? What are the things that are holding Jonah in to this state? And then we're going to look at how the Lord frees him from it, and he'll free us as well. Um, So first, let's look at the bars of it. What's holding him in? Self-righteousness, guys, says that God is wrong and I'm right. Jonah doesn't approve of the way of God's word or his workings in the world, okay? He doesn't approve of God's word. He doesn't approve of God's workings in the world, and he thinks he's right and and God's wrong. Um, Twice in in verse 4 and in verse 9, God comes to Jonah and asks him, do you do well to be angry? He's basically saying, are you right and I'm wrong? The Lord's saying that to him, and Jonah's implied answer is what? Yes, I am right and you are wrong. A little bit later, you know, the Lord says, at the very end, he says, should I not have pity on these people? He's saying, like, am I doing something wrong? Am I wrong? And Jonah's implied answer is, yes, you're wrong. I'm right. It doesn't get more self-righteous than thinking you're more right than God. Okay? And that's what Jonah's doing here. And we can do it, too. It's worse, though. Verse 1, where it says that what God did, Jonah was exceedingly displeased with. In verse 1, it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. That literally reads in Hebrew... It was exceedingly evil to Jonah, what God did. What God did was exceedingly evil to Jonah. It's like, wow, you know? Um, And we can do this too. We can think that we're right and God's wrong when we disagree with his word, right? I mean, have you guys ever read God's word and thought, well, that's not right, you know? Why did God do that? Or why does he say that? Um, When Jonah complains against the Lord, he says, I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, kindness. He's quoting Exodus 34. He doesn't like Exodus 34. He doesn't think that that's the way God should be. Do you ever disagree with God's word? Do you ever read God's word and, and think that your assessment of reality or your assessment of right and wrong is more right than God's? That somehow your sense of right and wrong and reality is, is the standard by which you can judge God? That's what Jonah's doing. That's self-righteousness. We can also um, think that we're right and God's wrong with his workings in the world. So sometimes it's not his word, it's the things he's doing. 
that we're looking at. And that certainly happened here. Jonah believes that God is wrong in the way he's running the world. Whether it was the saving of the Ninevites in chapter 3, or it's the destruction of his precious plant in chapter 4, he's mad at how God runs the world. He thinks that God's doing it poorly. And he's angry. He says he's angry enough to die. You ever pray that way? You ever pray like, I'm so mad at you, God, I'm angry. Just kill me. I haven't. Maybe you have. Maybe you felt that way, though. Do you know any angry Christians? Have you ever been an angry Christian? Have you ever just been an angry Christian for years? Right? You can be stuck in this for years. Are you an angry Christian right now? It happens. Do you question God's rightness and how he runs the world? How he runs your world? Do you question his rightness about your career? You need all this prep and you get this career and it just does not turn out the way it should have. Do you question his rightness in your finances? Like, why can't we ever get ahead? We work so hard. What's going on here? Do you question God's rightness in your marriage? You think, like, I got tricked. What am I doing with this particular spouse? Why, why is this going this way? This isn't what the way it was supposed to go. Do you question his rightness? Realize that God has appointed these things. Just like in this book, when God appoints a sea creature to eat Jonah, he appoints a plant to grow over him, he appoints a worm to eat it, he appoints a scorching east wind to give him heat stroke, God has appointed all these things. God has appointed your spouse. Sometimes people will say things like, um, you know, I think I made a really big mistake, and, you know, this wasn't God's will for me, and things like that. You know how I know your spouse is God's will for you? Because you married them. Okay, like once you're married, that was God's will. Okay, God has appointed this. Have you ever, you know, uh, thought that God wasn't right in that? Have you ever thought that God was not right in the way he's appointed things with your kids or your health? or chronic pain, or mental struggles that you have. God, is God right in what he's appointed? One of the bars of this self-righteousness is thinking that I'm right, my assessment is right, and God is wrong. But freedom looks like this, guys. Freedom looks like saying, you know, there's a lot of things, there will be a lot of things that God says and does that I don't think are right. And when there are, I'm going to assume I'm wrong and he's right. That's freedom. Freedom is to go, you know what? I don't know about that thing in your word, I don't know about that thing you're doing, but I just have to assume I'm the wrong one and you're the right one, right? We met this guy, um, Ellie and I, when we went to Sun City Gardens. We do a seniors ministry thing on Wednesdays, and uh, last time we went to it, we, we talked with Frank, and Frank is 99 years old. He always tells you that right off the bat. He was 99 years old. And he was shot down over the Mediterranean in World War II. I've heard it a few times, which is awesome. I want to hear it every time I, I go see him. But he was having some sort of an eye procedure, some sort of a surgery, and uh, some of us had prayed for him, and we were checking in on him. We're like, hey, Frank, you know, how did the eye surgery go? He's all, ah, it didn't go well. I'm basically blind. And we were like, oh, you know, we're being real sympathetic with him. And he's like, it's fine. He goes, it's fine. I'm not, how can I complain to God for anything? We're like, hey, is there anything we can pray for you for? He's like, no, everything God gives me is right. You know, he's just like, I'm fine. It's great. He's like, I trust the Lord. Everything that he's always done the best for me, and he's doing the best for me now. This is him blind. You know, that's freeing though, isn't it? It's freeing to go, God is right in all he ordains. Secondly, self-righteousness says, I deserve God's blessing more than others. Whoever those others are. For Jonah, it was the Ninevites, right? Jonah's mad because God had the nerve to bless Israel's enemies. And these were brutal enemies, no doubt. And I won't go into all the details of Mother's Day. You know, we probably don't want to go into all the ways that, I know you're disappointed. All the ways that they tortured people, and we could go into those details. They are brutal people, Okay. But now they'd repented and trusted in Yahweh, in the Lord. 
And, and, and you know, guys, what's behind this is it's really hard to stay self-righteous. It actually takes a lot of work. And this is why it takes a lot of work. Self-righteousness is saying, I'm a good person, better than most. I deserve God's blessing, right? It takes work to do that because you constantly have evidence you're not righteous. I constantly have evidence I'm not righteous. Jonah has lots of evidence he's not righteous, just in this brief tour, right? So what do we do? One of the things we do to try and pump up our righteousness in our own eyes is look at the faults and failings of others. That's the whole motivation behind judging people, is so that we can feel more righteous in our own eyes. And that's what Jonah's doing. He's really good at it, too. (laughs) If he keeps focusing on the atrocities of the Ninevites, he can feel like he's a pretty good person, better than most, and deserves God's blessing, right? And, and judging other people, it, it makes us feel better. Jonah's so good at it, he's even set up a judge's booth. Check this out. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Right? Jonah sets up this booth with a view of Nineveh. Right? Safe distance. Up on the hill. Puts his little booth so he can see Nineveh. Right? just in case they're going to blow it. Like, yeah, they repented, but I know better. These people are real dirtbags. It's just a matter of time, right? So he's up here on the hill, and he's just waiting for them to blow it so he can watch the fireworks. He wouldn't want to miss that. Super vindicating, wouldn't it be? I told you, God. Why did you even, you know, why did you rescue him? I told you you were going to need to destroy him. It's Jonah's little judge's booth, right? And we can do the same thing, can't we? Get a safe distance away, watch people's failings, judge them. You can do it on your phone, right? At a safe distance with a good view and judge people, shame them. It's all about self-righteousness. Self-righteousness says, I deserve God's blessing more than others. Freedom, though, guys, is to say this. None of us deserve God's blessing. I don't deserve it any more than my enemies. So I'm praying that God will have mercy on all of us, right? That's freedom. Does that feel freeing? That's freeing. It it doesn't require all the work self-righteousness requires. Self-righteousness to you guys, it isolates in self-pity. You see Jonah, he storms off, and he's up on the hillside sulking. We commonly see this behavior in children, right? That they storm off and they sulk for a while. Do adults do this? They do, don't they? No, they don't. They do. Prophets do this, okay? People that have been walking with the Lord a long time can sulk like that. Um, Jonah has made himself a little booth. And he's still exposed to the elements. And we can see that because the plant's so helpful to him. There's not a very good roof on it. He's kind of still exposed to the elements. And it's not a surprise because in that area, is, which is where modern-day Iraq is, there's not a lot of timber. He probably didn't have a lot, whole lot to work with. And so he sits out there exposing the elements, which is crazy, guys, because he would have had any accommodations he wanted in Nineveh. He's the hero. He's the one that brought the message where they repented and they've been saved and their fasting has turned to feasting and he could, he could stay anywhere he wanted in Nineveh, right? But he doesn't want to be near them. He doesn't want to be near them. He wants to be alone. He refuses to join. He's banished himself from them, you know? Like, I'm just going to be over here by myself. I'm going to sulk for a while. He, he wants to be away from God's people. He wants to be away from the annoying sounds of their joy, right? It's sad, isn't it? Jonah would rather be alone. He can't let go of his grievances. He can't let go of his grudges. He would choose to sit in this little booth outside the town, rehearsing his hurts and licking his wounds. Is licking your wounds, is that something people know? Do you guys say that, licking the wounds? It's real graphic, you know? Think of like a dog licking their wounds. There's actually a veterinary condition that um, is called acrylic dermatitis. Maybe some of your dogs have had it, where they lick their leg over and over again, and they get a wound that will never heal. 
And there's an endorphin release that they get from this kind of compulsive behavior where they lick, 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 and it, there's a wound that you got to put one of those radar dishes on them, e-collars, or you have to wrap it because they'll just lick, lick, lick. It's a beautiful illustration, guys, of our unforgiveness, of our bitterness, you know, rehearsing those wounds, you know, l- rehearsing your hurts, licking the wound, just sitting out there, lick, 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 right? That's what he's doing. Have you guys ever been tempted to just give up on church altogether? because of how other believers have hurt you? You ever been tempted to just kind of like go off on a hillside and find a little booth for yourself? I have, many times. And this is a community of sinners, so you're going to find people that have done things bad to you, and the temptation is to do like him, go sit in a little booth by yourself far away from God's people. That's what self-righteousness tells me to do, right? But freedom is this, guys. Freedom is saying that the church is a community of sinners, and like Paul's saying, I'm one of the worst ones. Isn't that free? To say, you know what, this is a community of sinners, I expect that, and you know what, I'm one of the worst ones. That's what Paul said. You think, well, that's a little dramatic. Well, it was a little dramatic for Paul to say, right? But he knew his own heart. He knew his own sin. He knew his sin better than other people's sin. Self-righteousness um, also refuses joy. And I feel so bad for Jonah on this. I mean, he is miserable. He's refusing to rejoice. The whole city's been saved. The whole city's rejoicing. The angels in heaven, they rejoice over one sinner repenting. This is a whole town. They're going crazy. But Jonah, guys, is holding on to his self-righteousness. He refuses to rejoice. He makes this little booth outside the city. And it's a perfect illustration, guys, of what's happening in his heart. That little booth, that little not-so-sheltering little place he is all by himself. It's a great illustration, guys, of what self-righteousness does to our hearts. It makes our hearts small. You know, this is a tiny thing. It's a tiny house, right? <laughs> it's a tiny prison is what it is, where Jonah can stew in anger with God over the ways that God's wronged him. He can isolate himself from God's people. He can judge others and wait for them to fail. He, he can the whole time feel justified in his anger as he rehearses those wounds and then licks them, right? Thinking about how if he were to forgive the Ninevites, because that's what it would take. It would take him forgiving the Ninevites and ex- not forgiving God. We don't forgive God. God forgives us, accepting what God has done and going, you know what, God, you're right. He would have to do that. And the thing is, you know, when you're in unforgiveness, what he's probably thinking is, if if I forgive those Ninevites, they win. So I'm just going to stay up here because I would hate for them to win, right? (laughs) It's punishing yourself. It's so sad. It's a joyless place that Jonah's in. It's a scorching place. This is a scorching east wind. It's a joyless, scorching place, lonely, away from the redeemed. Guys, it's a one-man colony of hell. That's where Jonah is. A scorching, alone, joyless place. Jonah's world has grown so small. He's so self-focused. He's so turned on himself. And this process has been going on a long time. There's a Latin term for it. It's incurvitus in se, which sounds like some sort of Harry Potter thing or something. Incurvitus in se. It means to turn in on oneself. That's what sin does, right? It causes us to turn in on ourselves. His soul is shriveling out there. And guys, Jonah is actually the Old Testament equivalent of the older brother and the prodigal son. A lot of times we think of the younger brother. Remember the story? The younger brother, he disdains his father. He asks for inheritance. He runs off. He spends it in sin. And when he hits rock bottom, he's all out of money. And he hits rock bottom. He goes, I'm just going to go back to my dad's house. I don't know what I'm going to find. He goes back expecting to be scolded and maybe treated like a slave. The surprise is the father comes running for his son when he sees him at a distance. Puts like the best robe on him and a ring and says, let's kill the fattened calf. Let's have a party. Let's rejoice. Is this big party for this younger brother, this this younger son. 
And, um, and it's shocking the way that, the, that he does that. And we often focus, guys, on the younger brother in the parable, but there's an older brother too. And the older brother, like Jonah, is super angry at that lavish display of mercy. In Luke 15, it says this in verse 25. Now the older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. So this is the party that the dad's having for this son, this prodigal son that's returned. He heard the music and the dancing, and he called to one of the servants and asked what these things mean. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? He can't understand that, that rejoicing. What do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And it says the older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. And he asked his father, he answered his father, look, he says to his dad, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed you, yet you've never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said, the father said to him, son, you've always been with me and all that I have is yours. It was fitting that we should celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. Isn't it an amazing image? This older brother, this self-righteous person that he refuses to join the party. You know, that's what it is to be self-righteous, refusing to join the party, the party of the forgiven. A party that you come into realizing that you don't deserve to be there. And nobody that's there deserves to be there, but it's all God's mercy. Jonah, guys, like the older brother, is imprisoned in self-righteousness. He refuses to join the party. And what's really cool about this, too, is just like the father in Jesus' parable, the Lord leaves the city of Nineveh, the city of rejoicing, and comes up to deal with Jonah, to plead with him, to say, come on down. You don't have to be here. You don't have to do this. He comes to persuade him to come in. How does he persuade him? He persuades him with his mercy. Look at what he does first. First he asks questions, right? He starts asking, don't you love how the Lord asks questions throughout the Bible? It's a really distinctive thing of Yahweh, of the God of the Bible. That he likes to ask questions like Genesis 3, you know? He says, where are you guys, right? Genesis 4, he says to Cain, he says, where's your brother, you know? A little bit later on when Jesus um, comes when Yahweh becomes a man, he asks questions to Judas. He says, do you betray me with a kiss? He's all the greatest questions. To Peter, he says, do you love me? To Paul, he says, why are you persecuting me? And so the Lord comes and he asks Jonah questions. He said, do you do right to be angry? And then he asks Jonah the question I want to focus on. Should I not have pity? That's the question he asks him. And lecture him. He goes, should I not have pity? He's going to let kind of Jonah think about that. It's so amazing what the Lord does here. But we need to back up a little because the Lord first sets him up with this plant thing. Because you're like, what's the plant thing? You know, he's setting him up. Okay, look at verse six. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, the Lord appointed a worm to attack the plant and wither it. So when the sun rose... The, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. It is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's shelter didn't have a great roof, and God caused this plant to grow over him and have shade over them. And Jonah's very happy about the shade. He's probably thinking like, finally, God, you're doing something for the people that deserve it. Right? Finally, you're doing something for me. You know, you do stuff for these riffraff. Now you're doing something for me. And he's, he's happy about it. And you want to say to him, Jonah, watch out. You're totally being set up. You know, don't get too attached. 
So then God causes a worm to eat the plant, and it dies, and it withers, and, and it left him in the burning sun getting heat stroke. And then Jonah's super mad, like, kill me mad, right? Between the time that Jonah was happy and mad, the Lord says something about his emotions. So he's real happy about the plant, and then once he's in the burning heat, he's really mad. But in between, the Lord said how he felt. When the worm was eating away at that plant, the Lord says how Jonah felt. Look at verse 10. The Lord said, you had pity on the plant. So as the plant's starting to be destroyed and starting to die, Jonah feels pity for it. He feels pity as the plant's perishing. It's like Jonah saying, oh, no, 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 don't die. Don't die. Don't perish. Don't perish. Please live. Please live. Don't die. He's like, please don't die. You know, he has pity over it. He's pleading with it to live. Jonah had compassion, a heart for, a love for the plant. The Hebrew for that pity is, has a sense of the flowing of the eyes. He's weeping over this plant, you know. Even before he's in the heat, he doesn't want to see this plant die. And in verse 11, the Lord says, And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle? The Lord's saying, shouldn't I have pity for the people? (laughs) You pity this plant? Shouldn't I have pity for the people and the animals? The Lord is helping Jonah here, guys, to develop the same heart he has for the nations. And this is something we've been praying for. We've been praying that God would so stir our hearts that he would give us our heart of mercy for the nations and give us action that's based on that mercy. And and it's, that's the very thing we've been praying for. And so the Lord says to Jonah, basically, here he goes, he goes, you don't care about these people, he, he, you don't care about these people or these animals, you care about this plant. He's saying, your value scale's all off. Like, in the scale of importance, it's humans, animals, plants. And he's like, you care for the lowest thing and you don't care for the others. It's interesting he mentions the animals, huh? Can't resist this part. It's interesting he mentions the animals, right? It says in Psalm 145, the Lord is good to all, his mercy is over all he's made. God cares for the life of animals. He's making that clear in this passage. Not as much as humans, but he has this care for the life of animals. And we see in like Proverbs 12.10, it says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. That like, it's actually a quality of righteous people that they care for the life of their animals. Now, even if they're going to eat them, they care for them along the way, and they make sure to you know, kill them in a way that's not going to um, cause undue pain to them. But God cares for animals. And he's saying to Jonah here, he's saying, your value scale is way off. You pity this plant for which you didn't labor. You didn't make it grow. And it came up in a night and it perished in a night. He's like, you didn't even make this plant. You didn't feed it. You didn't care for it. It's so temporary. He's like, Jonah, you got all emotionally wrapped up in a plant. Your value scale's all off. It's like he's saying, Jonah, you cannot imagine the amount of pain I have in the thought of all these human beings perishing. You know, you know what it's like to lose a plant. You do not know what it's like to be me and suffer the pain of the thought of all these people in the city perishing. You have no idea. You have no idea what it's like to have created them, to have cared for them, and then watch them perish eternally. These are people for which I formed them in their mother's womb. You ever thought about that? The Lord's actually formed every human being in their mother's womb. It says that, you know, he cares for us night and day every minute of our lives. And these are people that will live on either with the Lord or apart from the Lord eternally. He's like, I can't bear the pain of this. In Ezekiel 33, the Lord says this, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn from his way and be saved. And then he says this, turn back, turn back from your evil way. Why would you die? 
You know, he pleads with his creation. And Yahweh was so moved by mercy for his creation, for his, the people he's made, that his mercy moved him to become a man, right? Yahweh actually was so moved by this mercy for those he's created and cared for that he became a man. And that man entered the sinful cities of this world. And the cool thing is, when you look at Jesus, you can tell he's Yahweh. You can tell he's Yahweh just by the way he acts. He acts just like the Lord in, Jonah, in the book of Jonah. You know, he's always going for those marginalized people. He's always going for the, like, the Ninevites of his time. He always wants to get close to people like tax collectors and prostitutes and Sumerians, right? And it was the people that, like, religious types like Jonah didn't want him to get near, you know? They're like, what are you doing? Why are you? He's just like the Lord in the book of Jonah here. And unlike Jonah, Jesus Christ came not to judge the city, but to weep over it. You know, we have Jonah going up on the hillside so he can judge the city. We have in the Gospels, we see Jesus when he comes during that final week, when he comes back to Jerusalem, it says he stops and he weeps over Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that killed the prophets and stones those who were sent to them. How often I have wanted to gather you under my wings and yet you were not willing. You know, he's that, that, that the Lord pleading with people. And one day he went outside the city, not to watch its destruction, but to take its destruction. You know, you have Jonah going out there to watch the destruction. One day Jesus Christ left the city of Jerusalem, not to watch its destruction, but to take its destruction. On the cross, Jesus Christ exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness, so that we might be treated as if we were righteous like him. It was the righteous for the unrighteous. It was the righteous for the self-righteous to bring us to God. And today, guys, the Lord is still pleading, like he was to Jonah. He's still pleading for us to come out of our self-righteousness and receive his righteousness as a gift of mercy. And that's what the mission's all about, right? It says in 2 Corinthians, as we go out and we share the gospel, it's us pleading with people. It's God pleading with people through us. That's what the mission's about. God is still pleading to the world through us. And that's why the Lord's delayed. It says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow concerning his promise to return, as some count slowness, but is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for us to finish the mission, right? He says in Matthew 24 that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then he'll come. First, he wants to have all the nations, all the people groups, and there are several, many thousands left, all the people groups of the world hear the gospel. And so that's what it's about when we give to Holly or when we go. We'll probably go sometime in the near future. We'll send some teams there. That's what we're doing when we, um, when we support Lorian. Um, that's what some of you will do. I mean, we, it's been cool during this series because we've been praying for this. And I've had several of you come up to me and say, you know what? I'm thinking God's calling me to do this. I'm thinking God's calling me to, to go. And we want to help you go. Okay? That's what it's about. How about you? Have you personally responded to Jesus' mercy? Have you received salvation as a gift? Will you come out of your sin and join the feast? That's what it's about, right? Christian life is not a bummer. It's about leaving that hillside, scorching place, and receiving the gift of, being in, of enjoying his feast. And you'll have to leave some things behind, like Jonah would. You'll have to leave behind your own righteousness. You have to believe, leave behind your own opinions of how God should do things or what God should say. You'll have to leave behind your judging of other people. You'll have to leave behind your grievances and your grudges. You'll have to forgive others as you would be forgiven. 
You know, if we're going to receive his mercy, we're going to give mercy to other people. We're going to let our wound licking turn to laughter, right? That's graphic. We have to leave, you have to leave behind your, your need to be proven right. I mean, wouldn't that be nice to leave behind anyway? We have to leave behind um, our, our desire to prove ourselves better than others. We have to come like everybody else does, a complete sinner, to a feast that none of us deserve to be a part of. It's a great deal, guys. It's super freeing, and it's available for you today. What about Jonah? One last thought. What about Jonah? Like, how does, did he ever take the invitation? You know, it ends weird, doesn't it? I mean, look at the end of the book. This is verse 11, and we, I was talking with Josh about it earlier. He's like, has anybody said something's missing? <laughs> and the commentators don't say something's missing. They say it ends just the way it should, and it ends like this. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know the right hand from the left, as well as much cattle? And that's it. We don't know. It doesn't say whether Jonah had actually repented and come into the feast or not. And it doesn't say it in the parable the, um, the, the um, prodigal son either. We don't hear how the older brother does. It ends with a question, which I think is so cool. It's a question to us, isn't it? God has shown himself mercy. Have we shown ourselves moved by that mercy? That's the question it ends with. But I think, guys, that Jonah did get freed in the end. And the reason I think that is because we have this story. <laughs> I think the way we got this story... And the way with all of its sordid details was probably from Jonah, right? This is probably where this information came from, which would show a heart of repentance. Jonah no longer needing to prove himself righteous could use himself as an illustration of God's mercy, right? He's like, man, I was bad. Let me tell you all of it, you know? God is a merciful person. Um, St. Francis of Assisi from the 1300s, he said this, I have been all things unholy. If God can work through me, he can work through anyone. That's the heart of Jonah, right? when he repents, and we become recipients of God's mercy, now we can be messengers of his mercy. We're free to finish the mission. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.